Thank you for that. It's great to be uh, back at Master's College, to be a part of all that uh, God is doing here. I'm also told recently you've begun a new uh, extension campus, or are about to begin an extension campus in Israel. And I think that's one of the most exciting things possible for any of you to have an opportunity to spend time in the nation of Israel, actually the land, the Holy Land, the land where the Lord Jesus walked and all the prophets of God, because it's there that, that things come alive. I've had the privilege of being in Israel a couple of uh, weeks, really three or four weeks at a time, and uh, it's, it's stunning when you begin to read in the scriptures certain accounts and you actually see the place in your mind's eye. You know where this happened. Uh, I think of a particular account that's very charming to me, which happened, began at Caesarea Philippi, which is a place kind of barren up near the Golan Heights today where the water gushes out in streams and springs uh, uh, just above the, uh, the northern part of Galilee. And it's at that spot that Jesus said to his disciples, who do men say that I am? And of course, they were confused by that process until Peter finally, with the, with the help of God himself, said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And he said, you're right. And you will see the glory of that son of God, some of you, before you even taste death. And not many days later, he took them further up to a mountain, probably Mount Hermon, to the top where it says that Peter and James and John along with Jesus saw him and two figures come from heaven, Moses and Elijah, and there they, he was transfigured before them. He sort of tore back his outer garment of humanity and displayed the staggering person of God for who he was. And suddenly they, they, they were astounded, they were overwhelmed at that, uh, at that experience. And, and Peter always seems to get a bad rap. If you know the account in Luke chapter 9, it talks about Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration. And it says that Peter, not knowing what to say, said... He didn't have a clue, and so he just opened his mouth. He's probably like most pastors. We don't like any dead air time. We just like to fill it. And he said, Lord, it's good to be here. Let's make three tents, three tabernacles for Moses and Elijah and for yourself, because this is terrific. Let's stay here. You know, Peter didn't seem to get the picture. You know what I would have said if I was there in the Mount of Transfiguration? I would have said, Lord, it's good to be here. Let's build three tabernacles for you and for Elijah and for, for Moses. You see, because it was good to be there. Because here, for a moment in time, was heaven come down to earth. And here, here was the strategy session for the invasion of earth from heaven. Here's Moses and Elijah and Jesus, the high command of heaven, talking about what Jesus would accomplish as he dies in Jerusalem not many days beyond that point. It's a marvelous moment. It's a tremendous moment. It's a moment you want to cling to, and yet they weren't permitted and what I want to have us look at tonight is one of those three figures that appeared on the mountain of transfiguration. Not Jesus so much because we know lots about him and practically the, the whole of the, of the Christmas setting tells us all about his background. We know about the Lord Jesus Christ. We know about his background. We know about Moses. Charlton Heston has made Moses famous. We know all about what the Old Testament talks about in the person of Moses. But Elijah is a strange kind of figure. Moses represents the law of the Mount of Transfigurations. Elijah represents the prophets of God on the Mount of Transfiguration, and yet we know so little about him. He just sort of appears out of nowhere in, the, in 1 Kings chapter 17. Now I want to have us look together tonight, if you brought your Bible, at 1 Kings chapter 17, at the man Elijah. Elijah is so interesting to me because here is this man who is a part of the high command of heaven, 
dialoguing with the Lord Jesus and with Moses about what Christ will do as he invades earth and accomplishes his work on the cross, paying for all sin, for all time, for all men, offering them salvation and free eternal life by just receiving his love. And it's there that, we're, that, that, that Elijah plays a significant role. And yet James tells us in the book of James that Elijah was just like us. Elijah was just like us. He was ordinary. Well, that tells us very important things. It means that he had aches and pains like we do. Elijah, and if you look at his life, knew fatigue. He knew hunger. He knew sorrow. He understood delight. He experienced depression. Uh, so severe that he was immobilized by it. Uh, he, had, he experienced incredible stress, intense fear and anxiety. He experienced crippling anger. He led sort of a garden variety Christian life. He experienced all the things that we experience. He was just like us. Except that if you look at the life of Elijah, and particularly the, verse, the first verse of chapter 17 of 1 Kings, you will discover that he had made a very strong personal determination. He had made a choice that he would, with every breath of his life, honor God. He would spend his life honoring God. Take a look with me at this, uh, at this man who just sort of appears, this Tishbite from Gilead, in chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elijah, the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there will neither be rain nor dew these years except by my word. Elijah is on a mission. Elijah has a message. And Elijah is highly motivated. He comes to this incredible moment in time in the nation of Israel and speaks a tremendous word to Ahab, who was the king of that day. If you know the situation at 1 Kings 17, Israel has been split. There's a civil war going on between the south and the north. Judah retains the southern portion and Jerusalem, the capital. Israel, the ten tribes to the north. Uh, they're under, the, under, at this point, King Ahab. Uh, both countries have abandoned, really, the, the precepts of God and have wandered away. And there's tremendous idolatry and worship of, of, of Baals and Ashtoreth. And it's a wicked kind of time. It's into that uh, situation that Elijah comes and he speaks to a man whose name is Ahab. And Ahab is described for us in, in the earlier, uh, just earlier in chapter 16. You could look up uh, above and see verse 30 where it describes Ahab for us. This is the man to whom he speaks. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. It goes on to tell us more than Rehoboam, more than Jeroboam, more than all the previous kings of Israel, all of whom had abandoned God and walked away. He was, it goes on to tell us that he erected, verse 32, an altar to Baal, the house of Baal, which is built in Samaria. It goes on to tell us that Ahab, it says in verse 33, did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Jeroboam, the first king of Israel, had led the people away into idolatry, so had many of the kings that followed in the civil war and the wickedness and the destruction of the nation of God. And yet Ahab, we're told by the scriptures, actually did worse than that. In fact, it indicates worse that he did because he married a woman named Jezebel who was a priestess of a cult of, uh, of the Baals. She was a, a Sidonite, and uh, her reputation is so bad that her name is used to describe the worst possible corruption in the church. 
in Revelation chapter 2. So there's a real wicked moment, and that's who Elijah comes to, to this man who has done more to provoke God in anger than anyone else. And Elijah comes to face this wicked man, Ahab, and the wicked nation of Israel in this wicked moment in time. That's his mission. God has selected him to come to that spot in time, in history, and deliver a message. And here's his message. Verse 1. The end of it. Judgment. The message is simple. Judgment has come. The judgment of God has come. You see how he says it? Surely there there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. We're not told specifically how Elijah knew that. It's probable that God told him specifically, as he does in chapter 18, verse 1, where we're told that the word of the Lord came to Elijah saying, now go tell Ahab it's going to rain after three years of drought. But we're not told. It's also possible that Elijah simply knew the Old Testament because in Deuteronomy chapter 11 we're told the specific promise of judgment for idolatry for national Israel is the removal of rain. There will be drought. If you will turn to idolatry, God will turn away the, the, the refreshing rains that must, be, that must come to grow the crops and keep the, the country alive, productive. That will be the judgment. So Elijah knew, probably from the mouth of God, certainly from the book of Deuteronomy, certainly he knew what God intended to do and what God wanted to do. And Elijah's intent was to live explicitly tied to the instructions of God. He was following God in spite of the fact that it was going to produce in Ahab and all of Israel a vehement, volatile, negative reaction. They would rise up and try to kill Elijah because of that. All because he just said, God says, there's going to be judgment for the way you've been living. It's kind of like today. I don't know if you, uh, perhaps you don't, uh, being in school, but uh, moving to Michigan as I did into the Detroit area, somehow my name got on a a list, maybe it's the list, because I get every single fundraising letter and every single subscription opportunity, and I can, if I sent all the sweepstakes opportunities back, why I could fund uh, Christian ministries to the next uh, two centuries, probably, if I won all those marvelous awards, if I would just get a subscription to this magazine or that magazine, they're all coming to my house. Well, one of them was very interesting. It was an organization I wouldn't probably give money to, but they sent me a letter nonetheless, a seven-page letter, asking that I give them money. And I want to read some literal excerpts from that letter. I thought it was kind of intriguing as I read it. Here's what it said in part. This is a massively funded and dangerous political force threatening every community in America. That's why we must stop them, this writer said, before they succeed by challenging their actions in every community where they arise. We must make all Americans aware of their cynical and manipulative strategy. They are extremists, a dangerous movement. This selfish, narrow view is extremely dangerous. We must stop this new wave of extremism. We will block their attempts to distribute Bibles in public schools and impose voluntary prayer. The writer goes on to say, there's no question in my mind that these activities represent a persistent plan pattern to erode individual rights and impose the Christian rights anti-liberty 
morality on every American. Let, let, me, just, let me just say this so we understand one another. It is not the Christian morality that has triggered the AIDS epidemic. It is not the Christian morality that has killed 40 million children in America. It's not the Christian morality that has caused violent crime to escalate beyond belief. It is not the Christian morality that has permitted greed, monstrous greed to, and selfishness to infect every level of society. It's not the Christian morality that has led to a billion-dollar illegal drug business. It is not the Christian morality that has encouraged neglect and abuse by parents for their children. It's not the Christian morality that is ruined or dangerous to America. I mean, when did we become the bad guys? What is it that we are asking that's so awful and so terrible and so dangerous? Some people think we're dangerous. I hear this stuff and I read this stuff and I, and I think of Psalm 2 where it tells us that he who sits in the heavens laughs at them. But we should expect it. If they called the master of the house Beelzebub, so too the servants of the master's house. The servant is not greater than his master. No expectation if Christ was received this way, so too might those who follow Christ. Elijah was not well liked in his day. He was not, uh, not a pleasing fellow. And yet, he determined to stay in the mission, to fulfill the message. He kept doing what he did in the face of tremendous opposition. Why? How could he do that? Surely Elijah must have known that delivering a statement of judgment to the nation of Israel to Ahab, particularly when Ahab would both reject him and his message, surely he must have known that. Surely Elijah knows when he goes before the king and talks about judgment that he's putting his own life in jeopardy, kill the messenger, kind of mentality. And yet he doesn't shrink from the task, he doesn't back up because he's highly motivated. And you can see his motivation in chapter 17, verse 1. Look again with me. Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, here's his motivation, two parts. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand. His motivation is simply this. There is a living God. And there are all kinds of false gods. But there is a living God. And Elijah knows who that living God is. He, know that, he knows that God lives and God rules. And he had tremendous confidence in that. And secondly, he had chosen to dedicate his life to the service of the living God. It says in the New American Standard, Before whom I stand, and I like some of the other translations that say this, Whom I serve. It's a statement of decision. It's a statement of commitment. It's like what the Thessalonians are applauded for when Paul talks to them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And he says, you're great Thessalonians. I thank God for you because you have turned from dead idols, things that are not God, things that will not save you. And you have turned to serve the living and true God. You've made that transaction and you've given yourself in commitment to the person of Jesus Christ. And as a result... You serve the living God. 
Elijah is motivated because he knows God lives and God rules and he has made himself available to that living God. It's like what Joshua said to the children of Israel in the last great commission that he gives to them. In Joshua chapter 24, he says, Choose you this day whom you will serve. Make a decision, Israel. Determine now who you're going to walk with, who you're going to live for. As for me and my house, draws a line in the sand, we will serve the Lord. And he steps across. We're going to serve God. No matter what people might say, no matter what Ahab might say, no matter what the Philistines might say or the Canaanites or whomever Joshua might have been facing in his day. Paul says it similarly. Paul, in, in uh, Acts chapter 27, is on his way to Rome. He's in a galley. He's a prisoner. And an angel of God visits him. And the angel gives a message of comfort and encouragement to Paul. And he shares that comfort and encouragement with the crew of this vessel that is going down in the open sea. And Paul says this, Tonight, an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve spoke to me. I love that. Here's a man like Paul and Joshua, Elijah, committed to serve the living and true God. They'd made a determination, a purposeful determination, to honor God with every part of their life. It became for them their prime directive. You know what a prime directive is? It's the first and only significant value. Everything else runs from that. Anybody, a, a Trekkie or a Trekker here knows about Star Trek? I, I'm sorry, I go way back. I knew Dr. Spock when he had emotions. You know, and they used to look like they wore pajamas and it was in black and white and the background waffled on the, on the headquarters of the Enterprise. I mean, that's how far back I go with Star Trek. And they had a prime directive. Starfleet had a prime directive. You will never intrude on developing culture on pain of death. Everything else was subordinate to the prime directive. I'm suggesting everything else in our lives is subordinate to the prime directive of honoring God. That was his motivation. He had determined to honor God with every part of his life. His prime directive energized all of his life. It was the first decision, the primary value, and everything else flowed from it. Everything else had significant meaning. And in fact, the bottom line of how you evaluate your life changes radically if honoring God is the primary value. Westminster Catechism says the, uh, the chief end of man is to glorify God, to honor God, and to enjoy Him forever. That's the critical center of everything as we look to how we evaluate what we do and why we do it. I have the, the, the privilege of having in our church uh, an 800-student Christian school from K-12. through It's a wonderful place where kids grow in their understanding of God's world and God's truth and the person of God himself. And they ask me every, every winter to come and teach a, a, a section of the senior Bible. And I come and I teach the will of God. That's my section. That's what I teach. And I talk to these people about the will of God and I say to them, you really need to understand that Finding the will of God is not about discovery, it's about submission. God's will is not a map for you to see where you're going to go. God's will is a series of instructions to tell you what to do next that will eventually get you to that final destination. God's will is a function of submission, not a function of discovery. And I say to them, I want to suggest for you the purpose of your life, the purpose of God's will for your life is that you would honor Him with your life. So I said, the purpose of life is to honor God. Now, let me show you how this fits in your life. I told these students, I said, if the purpose of life is to honor God, what's the purpose of a basketball game? And they looked at me and said, have fun. Win. 
And I thought, have I been with you so long that you've not... If the purpose of life is to honor God, what's the purpose of a basketball game? Finally, somebody ventured forth and said, to honor God? Right. Precisely. Now, how do you honor God playing a basketball game? Somebody said, uh, score all the points you can. Yes. Keep your opponent from scoring all the points he can. Yes. Then it got a little quiet. Somebody said, play by the rules? Right. That honors God. And then I said, now you're going to need to strap it on here because I'm going to give you one that you aren't going to like, and that's this. Submit to the referee, for he is the agent of God. <laughs> Hope I haven't ruined tomorrow night's game for you. It changes the way you cheer. It changes the way you think. It changes the way you respond. If the purpose of life is to honor God, and the purpose of a basketball game is to honor God, and the referee is God's agent. And in our sports-crazy society, realize what kind of an affront that is. You know, we, we here on the, on the National Football League watching on the afternoons of these playoff games, the, 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 the announcers question and openly disregard and deride the referees. That's a lousy call. Terrible, terrible mistake. Awful. I mean, they even instituted instant replay in the NFL to try and help these poor uh, uh, officials who were doing such a marvelous job and are really representing the authority in the game. Well, we know about authority. Because God asks us to know about authority. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, you could go there and you would read that God tells us through the, person, the apostle Peter that all authority is vested by God. Kings, governors, all of them specifically so that God would rule through authority structures and therefore even the lowliest referee in a striped shirt blowing a whistle and maybe even making a mistake is still representing God as the authority in that moment. Well, that changes the way you cheer at a basketball game, changes the way you think about it at a basketball game. But I tried to get them to understand, you see, if the purpose of life is to honor God, then winning and losing are not the issue. Doing right is the issue. Winning and losing uh, is not so important. Honoring God is far more important. Now, if the purpose of your life is to do what you want, then do what you want then it really doesn't matter. Then disregard the referee. Get angry with him. Scream at him. Break the rules. Cheat. Do whatever it takes to win. Do whatever it takes to feel good. If the purpose of your life is to do what you want. But if the purpose of your life is to do honor to God, it's radically different in the way you view the things that you do. And here's, here's the point. Here's why I ask you to think this through. If we expect to stand in the midst of our culture in the 1990s and on into the 21st century as a people of God, a people with a different morality, a different value system, then our values had better be different. They had better be valuable. We better live in honor to God if we speak as the people of God. Elijah was on a mission for God with a message from God, highly motivated because of his desire to honor God. And he called his people to renewal. 
and the rejection of their human idols, the things that they had placed in place of God. Anything more consistently important to you and to me than God is an idol. That's why John, in the first book of John, is so adamant at the very end. He talks about the true life and the marvelous relationship you have with the true God. And then at the end of all of that, he says, little children, guard yourself from idols. Guard yourself from the things that will take you away from the marvelous opportunity to honor the personal God who has saved you. Don't, don't turn back from the service of the living and true God to serve the things that are mundane and earthly and transitory, that are passing away. Honor God. So you have to determine what your prime directive is going to be. What's going to be the single value from which everything else flows? Is it going to be to honor God? Or is it the prime directive of your life, the pursuit of peace and prosperity, personal safety, perhaps? If that really is what motivates you, then we will not honor God. Not when things get tough. Not when it gets difficult to stand for Jesus Christ in a culture. Then, when I must stand for Christ, though I might want to, I'll waffle. Because I haven't really determined, first, foremost, and above all else, honor God with my life. And I'm going to suggest that you, that you reaffirm it daily. First, I will honor God. If you do that, nothing else comes before Him. And you'll discover that every other priority of life begins to line up in harmony underneath that prime directive of honoring God. When you do the dishes, you can do the dishes to honor God. It becomes a sacred task. When you, when you uh, do your homework, it becomes a sacred task. You do it to honor God, not to get a grade. You can, you can play golf to the honor of God. We tried very hard today to do that. I'm not sure we succeeded at every point. Everything you do takes on the potential of a sacred cast if you determine to honor God. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, whatever you do, whatever you do, from the simplest behavior of all, from eating and drinking, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do all to honor the one who has saved you, the one who went to the cross for you. Do all for him. Respond to him. That's your motive. And Elijah had decided to do just that and to follow God, and that's the reason he could stand in the face of such national adversity and grave personal danger. Elijah's life is on the line after this moment. He could still stand there and declare the righteousness of God. And I think that's the, what the, God wants us to do, to enter into a deep walk of faith with Him. Peter says it uh, in 1 Peter chapter 5. He talks about um, uh, humble yourself beneath the mighty hand of God, putting Him, in a sense, in, in primary position over you. Humble yourself beneath the mighty hand of God, and in due time He will exalt you in His way. Uh, God says through Samuel to David, those that honor me, I will honor them. Those who determine to honor me, I will respond to them. Those who put their faith and trust in me and honor me by their behavior and their life, I will respond to them in ways that they will never see and never expect unless they're determining to honor me. I think of that, that, uh, that great movie, uh, Chariots of Fire. Did you see that movie when it came out? Maybe ten years ago, I think now. Eric Little portrayed as a Christian missionary on a mission to China, took an interlude of time to run in the 1924 Olympics. He was the fastest 100-yard meter runner of, of the day, and yet he refused 
to run in the 100-yard or the 100-meter dash because a preliminary heat was to be held on a Sunday, and Eric Little had said, my life is to honor God, and I will not use Sunday as a day of recreation or a day of fun or a day of running in competition, because I have determined first and foremost I will honor God. And he gave up the opportunity for the gold medal in the 100 meters because of that conviction. Now, you can disagree with his conclusion or his choice or his application, but you can't disagree with his motive, can you? How can you disagree with his motive? His motive was to honor God above all else. And then delightfully, we find in the history of that that he gets to run in the 400 meters. He's given an opportunity. God responds in a sense, and an opportunity surfaces. Someone graciously gives him the chance to run in a 400-meter race, which he wins and still gets a gold medal. Isn't that marvelous? God, God responds. God promises to do that. If the prime directive of your life is to honor God, then stand back and watch God work in your life. I think that's why their next several verses in, in 1 Kings 17 are there for us. Look at what God gives back to Elijah, who is determined to honor him. Elijah said, the living God whom I serve says this, judgment on the nation of Israel for their idolatry. He took a stand in honor to God, and here's how God responds in honor to him. You can see the the details. He's told to go to the brook Kirith, verse 3. He does, he goes there. He is hidden there. It is a place of safety there. God gives him personal reminders of his relationship. He doesn't give him success. There's no national repentance. But God does, in fact, give lots of small little reminders that he is thankful and appreciative of Elijah's purposeful honoring of himself. And so God responds by taking him to a place of safety, the brook Kirith, and hides him there for a long period of time when the rest of Israel is scombing the countryside looking for Elijah in order to put him to death. God hides him and cares for him and protects him. And look what what he gives. God sends to him ravens. You don't need to go into the theology of ravens to simply realize these are live creatures, fellow servants of the Most High God. Is this companionship? God brings probably the same ravens every day to Elijah. Is that a reminder that God overrules all the things of this earth to cause his servants to be cared for? even with the little thing like companionship with other living creatures. And these birds come not once a day to feed him, twice a day. More than necessary for his survival. Morning and evening. See what it says? Morning and evening they come. And not just with one kind of food. He come with a variety. There is bread and meat. Morning and evening. God providing for Elijah in a fashion that would give Elijah a great sense of confidence that God is with me. And God really saying through these small things, these small little reminders, Elijah, I'm with you. I appreciate you. I'm glad for your standing for me. Trust me for the next step of your life. Stay faithful to me. Continue to honor me. And this time at the Dry Brook Institute, one writer says, was a time of vital preparation for Elijah, despite the fact that it appears to be a time of loneliness and isolation and rejection. It was a time of vital preparation. This is the same man who comes back a chapter later and stands on Mount Carmel and calls down fire from heaven. An incredible moment in the life of this man. 
It begins way back in chapter 17, verse 1, when he said, The living God whom I serve. He had determined to honor God, and God would honor him in response. You know Dick Mast? Dick Mast, it's a name that you probably don't know unless you follow the real backwater of the PGA, the Professional Golfers Tour. Dick Mast is a professional golfer who'd been on the tour for probably 20 years, struggled. For 12 of those 20 years, he had to go back to the qualifying school to to, to re-up, to to get back in the tour because he hadn't earned enough money. He always had trouble on the last day, never did a, a great round of golf on the last day, couldn't earn enough money. That was his struggle. And lo and behold, I'm watching a television program, a, 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 a PGA event, and Dick Mast has scored a 64 on the last day and leaped over about 30 competitors and is now sitting in third in this tournament. And the announcers, as I turn on the television, are, are raving about the fact that Dick Mast, the nicest man on tour, that's how he was described. Everybody likes Dick's Ma- Dick Mast. He's the greatest guy. They're thrilled to pieces to see Dick do well now, finally, on a last day event. And here he is in third place, going to get a great check. So they bring Dick Mast up into the, into the program booth. And maybe if you've seen one of those PGA events on the, on the TV, you see that the announcer says, Dick, it was a great final round. Tell us your feelings about it. And puts the microphone out. And Dick says this, Christ, 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 Christ. Now, that's not what he said. What he said was this. I have to tell you that Jesus Christ is far more important to me than golf. In fact, if I hadn't had problems in my early career, I never would have met the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful for the opportunity to go back to the tour school, to go through those tough times and those difficult places. And I still have a tough time on the tour, but Jesus Christ is my life because Christ has died for me. He's taken away my sin. He's forgiven me. He's made me new and gives me the promise of eternity. And the announcer is so dumbfounded and so he's still got the microphone out here. (laughs) Hasn't thought the presence of mind to yank it away. And I was sitting in the chair and I saw this and I leaped up and I shouted to Linda, my wife, in the kitchen. I said, Linda, I said, I'm, a, I'm not a prophet, but notice, I said, they that honor me, I will honor. Watch what God does with this guy. Well, I didn't expect it to happen right away, but it did. About a half an hour later, the leaders of the tournament are now coming through. They're in the last hole. Dick Mast is still in third place. The guy in second place is two strokes ahead of him. The guy in first place is three strokes ahead of him. They tee off on the 18th hole, the last hole of the tournament. The guy who's in second place drives it in the woods, blows it up short of the green, chili dips it into the trap, fluffs it out of the trap, and three putts for a seven. Now, I didn't make a seven all day today. I was six or worse most of the Anyway, uh, the fa- I mean, I'm not a very good golfer, but I could do better than that. This guy dropped three strokes from second to third, and Dick Mast, sitting in the interview room, moved from third to second, an increase in his check of $40,000. Now, that's not the way we'd like the story to end. We'd like to have both guys blow it out of the water and Dick Mast leaps to first, right? That's not the way it happens in God's economy, because God's still working with Dick. But the fact of the matter is, God did give him a small little reminder. We like to see it in a neat box and have it all put together. The simple fact of the matter is, Dick Mass determined to honor God in the moment of time that God gave him to honor him. And in that moment, he seized the, the, the mission and the message, and he was highly motivated because he had determined in advance to honor God with all of his life. So any moment was a moment of mission and a moment of message, a moment of opportunity. And he decided to honor God. Let me, let me give you a tougher one. 
There's a man named Kifa Sempengi. Kifa Sempengi is a man who lived for a number of years in the 60s and 70s in Uganda. He writes in his autobiography, A Distant Grief, about the horrible time in the early 70s when Idi Amin, the dictator of Uganda, was killing Christians. He was murdering them, slaughtering them. The Nubian assassins, who were really the state police, had run around and corralled the Christians and killed them on the spot without so much as a, how do you do? And so life was greatly stressful in Uganda in 1973. And Kifa Sempangi describes a moment in time when he confronted these people and God determined to spare his life. And he says it this way. Let me read it for you. It was Easter Sunday. Thousands had come to the gathering from miles around. It was the end of the day. The sun was going down. I closed the service and then it happened. I greeted several more friends, left for the vestry to change my clothes, hoping to have a few moments in prayer alone. I had to push my way through the crowd, and when I finally arrived at the house, I was exhausted. I was too tired to notice the men behind me until I had closed the door. There were five of them. They stood between me and the door, pointing their rifles at my face. Their own faces were scarred with the distinctive tribal cuttings of the Kakwa tribe. They were dressed casually in flowered shirts and bell-bottom pants and wore sunglasses. Must be the national uniform. Although I, although I had never seen any of them before, I recognized them immediately. They were the secret police of the State Research Bureau, Amin's Nubian assassins. For a long moment, no one said anything. And then the tallest, obviously the leader, spoke. We are going to kill you. If you have something to say, say it now before you die. He spoke quietly, but his face was twisted with hatred. I could only stare at him, he writes. For a sickening moment, I felt the full weight of his rage. We had never met, and yet he had, his, only, his deepest desire was to tear me to pieces. My mouth felt heavy. My limbs began to shake. Everything left my control. There will, he, I thought there will need, not need to kill me. I'll, I'll just fall over dead right here. I wondered about Panina, home with Damali, what would happen to them when I was gone. And then from far away, I heard a voice. And I was astonished to realize it was my own voice. I do not need to plead my own cause, I heard myself saying. I am a dead man already. My life is dead and hidden in Christ. It is your lives that are in danger. You are dead in your sins. I will pray to God that after you have killed me, He will spare you from eternal destruction. The tall one took a step towards me and then stopped. In an instant, his face was changed. The hatred had turned to curiosity. He lowered his gun and motioned to the others, do the same. They stared at him with amazement, but they took their guns away from my face. And the tall one spoke again. Will you pray for us now? I thought my ears were playing a trick. I looked at him and then at the others. My mind was completely paralyzed. The tall one repeated his question more loudly. Would you pray for us now? He was becoming impatient. Yes, yes, I, I, I will pray for you. I answered. My voice sounded bolder than it was, even to myself. I will pray to the Father in heaven. Please bow your heads and close your eyes. 
The tall one motioned for the others again, and together the five of them lowered their heads. They bow I bowed my head, but I kept my eyes open. That's what he writes. The Nubian's request seemed a strange trick to me. At any minute, I expected that my life would end, and I didn't want to die with my eyes closed. That was his reasoning. Here's his prayer. Father in heaven, I prayed, you who have forgiven men in the past, forgive these men also. Do not let them perish in their sins, but bring them to yourself. It was a simple prayer. Prayed with deep fear. But God looked beyond my fears, and when I lifted my head, the men standing in front of me were not the same men who had followed me into the vestry. Something had changed in their faces. It was the tall one who spoke first. His voice was bold, and there was no contempt in his words. You have helped us, he said, and we will help you. We will speak to the rest of our company, and they will leave you alone. Do not fear for your life. It is in our hands. You will be protected. I was too astonished to reply. Uh, the tall one only motioned for the others to leave. He stepped himself to the doorway and then turned back to speak one last time. And he said, I saw widows and orphans in the congregation today, he said. I saw them singing and giving praise. Why are they so happy when death is so near? It was still difficult for me to speak, but I answered him. Because they are loved by God... And he has given them life and will give life to those they loved even though they died in him. His question seemed strange to me, but he did not stay to explain. He only shook his head in perplexity and walked out the door. I submit to you this, ladies and gentlemen. If you determine as the prime directive of your life to honor God, he will honor you. He'll care for the smallest needs. They won't be great, flowery success. That's not the point. But he promises to walk with you. Isn't that, isn't that what uh, Joshua is told early in his career? This book of the law will not depart from your mouth. And you will meditate on it day and night. So that you will be careful to do all that is written in it. Then you'll be prosperous. Then you'll have success. Have I not commanded you, says the Lord? Have I not commanded you? Be strong. Be courageous. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Can I give you a homework assignment? This is college. You guys do homework, don't you? Homework assignment. Every hour on the hour of your waking life from this moment forward. When the clock strikes 12... Set your little digital alarm on your wristwatch, and when it goes beep, say to yourself, the purpose of my life is to honor God. The reason I was made is to honor God. God created me to honor Him. It will change the way you minister. It will change the way you live. It is the living God who calls you to honor Him. It is the living God who has awakened your life to something new and better and far more staggering than you ever realize to an eternity that is marvelous and delightful that it stands before us, those who are forgiven in Christ. It reminds me of, of, my, of my literary hero. And my literary hero is a man who's a fiction. He's a man who's the, in the mind of a writer named Alan Payton who wrote a book called Cry the Beloved Country. It's a story of South Africa. 
a story of the great wrenching sorrows of South Africa, black against white and apartheid and, the, and yet the reconciling love of God. And in the midst of that, there's a major character and the major character goes to Johannesburg in the story and he meets a pastor whose name is Misangu. He is Zulu. Misangu is my hero. For when this man who is uh, in great need comes to Masangu, Masangu does for him the small, seemingly insignificant, gracious things, takes him to a particular bus depot so he can get a bus, loans him a few dollars, cares for him in this fashion, lets him stay in his bed. And in the midst of the story, just a passing comment, the major character turns to Masangu and says, you are so kind. To which Masangu responds in this fashion. I am not kind. I am a sinful and wicked man. God has laid his hands upon me, that is all. God has laid his hands upon me, that is all. If God has laid his hand upon you tonight, or in years past, he invites you to honor him with every breath of your life. Will you honor him? You live life every moment with a driving motivation so that at any moment it could become a mission for you to give a message in the moment of cultural time so that others might know about the marvelous grace and the wonder of Christ. Will you honor him? I trust you will. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for who you are, for the wonder of your majesty, for the staggering love that forgives your enemies, for the truth that never changes. We thank you that you've given us the role of reconcilers. Yes, we have to pick up the pieces, but you went to a cross to accomplish the good. How can we do less? Lord Jesus, may we honor you with every breath of our life. May we determine that every relationship, every activity, all of our homework, all the things that you have planned for us in the future, that all of those we give now to you. These are places where we can honor you and we desire to do so. Remind us, please, daily, hourly to do that. And give us courage and boldness, Father, to honor you by obedience to your word, knowing full well that we serve a living and true God, the only true God. And so we rest there with great confidence, desiring to live our lives in a fashion that demonstrates the reality of living Christ in us to a watching world. Praise you and thank you in his name. Amen.